so he was attempting to escape under the pseudonym of I Bugger Off. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have Lieutenant David Pelham James of the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. Now, I've got to be the first to admit, I don't know much about the Navy, so I've had to do quite a bit of looking at this, and it's quite fascinating, actually, mm. some of this story. So let's start with the man himself. So he was born on Christmas Day, 1919. He went to Eton, and he was evidently quite an achiever, because mm-hmm. by the age of 17, he'd sailed around the world. Right, okay. So it's obviously where his interest came with, yeah. with the Navy. And he also joined his father, who was evidently a sailor as well, on a trip to Spain, where it says reliably they observed the ongoing Spanish Civil War. Right. So that's interesting in itself. But 1938, he went up to Balliol College in Oxford to read Geography, useful, I mm-hmm. think, if you're going to be sailing somewhere. But he didn't stay. He only did a few terms before he joined up. Because as we see in his report, December 1939 is when he decided he was going to enter the Navy. Now, it looks like his first posting, he was a midshipman on HMS Drake. And he later served on armed merchant cruisers patrolling the Denmark Strait. But he then moved on to motor gunboats. Now, I'd heard of motor torpedo boats. I wasn't up on motor gunboats, so I had to go and have a look at these things. And they look pretty fantastic. They were one of the fastest boats on the water at the time. They would do 42 knots, which is quite considerable, bearing in mind it's loaded with guns. Mm -hmm. And because of the number of guns, it's loaded with about 30 people on board as well. Okay. So it's a very fast machine. Now, the benefit of these motor gunboats was that they were particularly challenging for the enemy to hit. Good. Mostly because of their speed and that they were actually quite small. Now, the problem with them being fast and quite small is you only can go fast when the weather is good. And when the weather is bad, you don't want to be on a small boat. So Mm -hmm. they were rather limited in the operations that they could use and when they could actually be deployed. So that does become an issue. So he moved on to those in 1941, and he was actually a commander of a motor gunboat number 79 when it comes to our particular event that saw his capture, which was in February of 1943. So I shall move to his report for his comments on this. So it says, on the 27th of February 1943, in motor gunboat 79 under my command, our orders were to escort a unit of mine layers on a mine laying operation off the Dutch coast. And thereafter, we were given freedom of action until dawn. Sounds like a fun order. It does sound like a fun (laughs) order, but it is in the dark, obviously, and you're in a little boat. So I'm hoping I don't do boats particularly well. I don't even really do ferries particularly well. So (laughs) hats off to him on this one. At about 0300 on the 28th of February, an enemy unit was encountered off the Dutch coast. And in the course of the ensuing action, MGB 79 received multiple hits aft, severing the steering gear and severing all electrics, telegraphs and hydraulics. Now, worth mentioning a point here, these boats were also made of wood. So any hits, I imagine, were messy if you did manage to hit it. And of course, it is the dark, so the Mm -hmm. Germans have managed to hit it in this one. While I was in the engine room attempting to manoeuvre clear on engines, further hits were received in the petrol compartment, setting the ship on fire. Again quite bad, in a boat made of wood. Yep. 
Having got out a distress signal and destroying their equipment, we abandoned ship. Some of the crew were picked up by other ships of the unit, but owing to the proximity of the enemy, they were unable to rescue all of us. And he goes on to say that about 0400, the Germans picked up himself together with four others. So there isn't a huge amount of information. We know they carried up to 30. And you know the fact that he's been picked up with just four others, one would hope that more have managed to be picked up elsewhere. You would hope so, but late February in the middle of the night I can't imagine the water was particularly warm and obviously it was night time so they weren't able to see them. Indeed I I wouldn't catch that there were many survivors out of his boat and that there isn't really anything else that we've managed to see as to what occurred with the with the crew. He goes on to say the enemy ship was a modern built trawler. We were well treated and given food drink and medical attention. No interrogation was proposed but our names and ranks were taken. Now I think that's fairly standard. I think most seafarers were good to their fellow seafarers. Yes, and in actual fact, in, in his book, James does talk about this a little bit more because he, he's paraphrasing slightly, but he essentially says because of the perils of the sea, there's a mutual understanding that even if you're each other's enemy, mm. you don't leave even your enemy to the perils of the sea in a way that perhaps doesn't exist for the army. Yes. Because they're on land. Sure, there are risks on land, but it's the additional risk of the sea that he feels creates this special bond between seafarers. Absolutely, uh, I can totally get that. So he goes on to say, at about 1,000 hours on the 28th of February, the ship docked in Rotterdam. Uh, about 1,600 hours, we were taken under escort to the station and then by train to Wilhelmshaven. So he's still not been interrogated, but he's now on his way to Germany. Yes, well, I mean, certainly Wilhelmshaven is in Germany. And he was to remain there in a converted hotel for the next 12 days, confined with with himself and the crew who had been rescued and he states that he was in a room by himself in comparative discomfort and was given nothing to read three cigarettes a day and simple rations so although he's been rescued he's not exactly living the life of luxury but nor has he been placed into the prisoner war camp system yet so it was while he was being held in this hotel at Wilhelmshaven that the interrogations did start taking place he was interrogated four times by an elderly naval captain However, the interrogations were carried out in relative comfort. He states, I was placed in an armchair by the fire, but refused to answer questions, and the interrogation was not pressed. Now, this is a new form of interrogation that I've not really come across before, mm. being made comfortable, put in an armchair, placed by the fire. I mean, the half expect cigars and whiskey to be brought out. Well, it's not been unknown for prisoners to have been particularly at Dulag Luft, bribed with, with alcohol, or plied with alcohol, probably more accurate. True, but this feels more like a fireside chat than an interrogation. Doesn't it just? Yes. However, it didn't seem to have worked any better than any other form of interrogation or indeed the famous Red Cross forms. So on the 12th of March, so about two weeks after being captured, he was moved by train to Marlag Milag Nord, which is in a small village called Vestatimka. Well pronounced. Thank you. Now, Marlag Milag is almost a relatively unique camp. It's not one we've heard of before, is it? So we have actually come across it before very briefly in Easterbrook's episode, mm-hmm. where rather than being taken to Dulag Luft, he was temporarily held in a naval camp. Now, that was Marlag Milag, this camp here. I get you. But that yep. was only a temporary one. So the reason why it's relatively unique is because it was a dedicated naval camp. And of course, by the very nature of the combat, you don't get an awful lot of naval prisoners of war. Not a great deal. They were, by some distance, the smallest grouping by number. What's further interesting is that... So the Marlag refers to Marine Lager, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, naval camp. Makes sense. Quite literally. Milag, I was a little bit less sure about... 
but it is the ones for the merchant seamen. I so see. The merchant navy seafarers were kept in the Milag part of the camp. Why that's interesting is because there were actually about 5,000 merchant seamen held as prisoners of war, but this is despite the fact that they were deemed civilian non-combatant by the Geneva Convention. Now, this was respected by the British until 1942, but throughout the entirety of the war, the Germans captured and held mer- any merchant seamen that they Interesting. Captured. I didn't know that. My yeah. grandfather was a merchant seaman, you see. Oh, right, okay. So, but he luckily didn't get caught. Yes, And after 1942, we did start holding merchant seamen because, of course, they could be redeployed elsewhere. And in 1943, there was actually a proposal by the German Navy to make an exchange of merchant seamen, but it was ultimately refused by the British because they basically knew that the plan was for them to be redeployed as submariners in the U-boats. I see. And therefore, it was going to hurt us more than it was going to hurt them because, of, of course, we also had better trade links with America in particular. And also to Russia through the Arctic convoys. Of course, yeah. So that is Marlag Milag, a a dedicated naval POW camp. Apart from that, it basically functioned like any other POW camp. It had theatres and activities to keep them occupied in bunks and etc. So it's much like any other POW camp, but Mm. this was a dedicated camp to naval POWs. And almost immediately, Lieutenant James was planning an escape. Excellent. Good man. Absolutely. Now, the initial plan was to attempt a wire-cutting scheme, and he was to do it with two others, uh, Lieutenant Rodwell and and Lieutenant Eggleston. They had managed to obtain some wire cutters, and the plan was to set out on a wire-cutting expedition originally conceived by Rodwell. However, they were forced to give up the attempt. Now, what he says next, again, I find very interesting because he says it was too late in the season. Now, when you do a lot of reading around the prisoner war escapes, there is a lot of references and Pat Reed talks a lot as the Colditz escape officer. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about the escape season. You hear about it in other books as well. It is in actually The Great Escape, that's referenced as well. Typically, it's from about March to September. The reason being that that is when the weather is good enough to get out. Yeah. However, he is talking in April as being late in the season. So this confused me when I first read it. Hmm. However, the reason why he's saying this is because he's saying that the nights were too light to do a wire-cutting job. I see. Which actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. So he's talking about a completely different sense of escape season. Well, I know they looked a lot at the patterns of the moon and cycles of the moon as well Mm -hmm. for being able to evade. And of course, you know, on a full moonlit night, things show up even Mm. out in the countryside once your eyes become adjusted to it. So it would make sense. Yes, absolutely. And certainly a wire job would be very risky in full moon. And even if it was just the night was too bright, it would make it extremely risky. And actually, he goes on to say later in this report that wire schemes are among the most dangerous and risky escapes that a prisoner of war can attempt. And I don't disagree with him in the slightest. Yeah. So having given up on the wire cutting scheme, his first actual escape attempt was made in June 1943 when he attempted a tunnel. So he and several others started a tunnel scheme with the opening being underneath the dining room. Now, the challenge with the dining room was that the Germans used to inspect the ground underneath the floors of that hut weekly for signs of tunneling. In fact, they would do it for all the huts, but particularly this one. Yeah. The challenge with this particular hut was that there was a brick wall supporting the partition between the galley and the dining room. And so to overcome that challenge, they had to build effectively a false wall 
in order to create space so that they could cover up the tunnel entrance. That's excellent. It's brilliant. I mean, as We've an seen engineer, it in it, yeah. yeah, as well. Yes. As an engineer, I'm sure you enjoy this. Yes, <laughs> creating more things in order to hide the destruction of things behind it is is quite impressive. Yeah, exactly. And so they built this dummy wall about four feet nearer the inspection hole. So of course they made holes for inspecting. So they built the wall about four feet closer to that wall in order to create the impression that the wall still existed, but mm-hmm. to have created the space in which to sink the tunnel shaft absolutely it's genius i love it so by early september so we're talking about about three months later they had managed to dig about 120 feet impressive actually pretty good going doesn't say what the ground type though was it no it doesn't it doesn't clarify on that one however they needed to get to 140 feet so they dug the vast majority they're only 20 feet short but the Germans were getting extremely suspicious that something was afoot, but couldn't find any clues at this stage. Now, the Germans did something actually surprisingly bright, which was that when they're suspicious that there's a tunnel, usually they just keep inspecting until they find it or the tunnel breaks. What they did here was that they actually switched the officers in the officer compound with the other ranks in the other rank compound. Now, of course, they weren't able to communicate that there was a tunnel in existence, so as soon as that switch had taken place, all tunneling ceases. Wow. Just that is good. That very, is very good. Very smart, very sneaky. I mean, we've we've covered the um, driving lorries around to try and collapse tunnels and Donkey microphones and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or, or in the case of one example, putting mines, wasn't it, in the, yes. uh, in, in the ground uh, past the wire. I prefer this version to the mining one. The mining one just sounds... It's a lot easier. I mean, we've we've heard of people being moved around in the camp system anyway, Mm -hmm. and that disrupted the Great Escape quite a bit with the manoeuvres there, but to move all of them Mm -hmm. and do a complete swap, that's inspired. Yeah, so... Once they'd made this switch, they started to dig a trench six metres deep around the entirety of the officer's camp, and it took the Germans a full fortnight to find the tunnel. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is actually high levels of commitment that the Germans have taken here. I mean, ordinarily we kind of see efforts to find the tunnel, but not to this extent, actually. And in in another thought, actually having that trench at that depth would uh, relatively eliminate... I mean, because to to, to tunnel down deeper than that as well is getting a serious ground engineering feat. Um, To do it around the entirety of the officer's compound as well, just to find this one tunnel. Yeah. I actually kind of... I kind of like this. I, I, I know we're very supportive some, of the escapers, but... I have some respect for this. In the same way that I also have some respect for making the false wall to sink the shaft. Mm. There's a lot of sneakiness going on here, but there's mutual respect here, I feel. Mm. You know, it's right, fine. You're going to mm. build a false wall. We're going to move you all out and dig a six-metre trench around the entirety of your compound just to find this one tunnel. Brilliant. There's a lot of mutual respect here, actually. Yeah. I like it. So having found the tunnel, they then filled it in and it took a further three weeks before they moved all of the officers back into their old quarters. Germans have also committed over a month of disruption to find this one tunnel. Wow. So James ultimately says that we at least had the satisfaction of knowing that the Germans had expended about six months of labour in the entirety of the digging. They were still digging when I left the camp in February of 1944. So they were still going even after he had actually finally escaped from the camp. Brilliant. Superb. So, that was escape attempt number one, if you don't include the wire job. Yeah. And he's not, so we're not going to. Fine. We'll respect his wishes on this one. So, the second escape took place also in September. 
So this one is also quite sneaky, but mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. So his report states that there was a certain standard of form of letter instructing the Germans to move officers from one place to another. And I had ascertained that action was usually taken on these letters immediately upon receipt. There was a system of repatriation in existence whereby if a prisoner of war was deemed too unfit for service, he could be repatriated. Now, there were some prisoners of war who committed to making themselves so unfit for service that they were repatriated. I think Harry Elliott is a name from Colditz. Yes. Who made himself so unwell that actually he caused permanent damage to his body. And in actual fact, we have seen a a previous escaper when we covered the escape of Cowley, who was being repatriated. Yes. When he chose to escape from the repatriation party, which was a slightly odd choice, but a decision he took. So there was a system of repatriation. What James is trying here is to essentially fast track that. So, here's what he does. He states, Lieutenant Commander Linton, the camp paymaster who knew the German writer staff was going to obtain one of these letters and with it as a guide we were going to forward instructions that I was to be repatriated via Spain. Lieutenant Orchard, who was repatriated in October of 1943, upon his return brought details of the plan of this scheme back to the UK and was informing the authorities in the UK of the plans for this scheme to be enacted. However, just as they were about to enact this plan, the Germans changed the entirety of their staff within the letter-writing pool. Okay, yeah. And so they were no longer able to obtain an original form of the letter. And so, ultimately, they were unable to implement the scheme. But it is quite oh, yeah. an ingenious scheme. I mean, it's very, very smart because they're using the system that already exists. Then forge a letter to get him fast-tracked onto the scheme, even though he's perfectly fit. He's essentially avoiding the need to make himself so unwell that he would be sent home. And instead, just trying to force them through the Germans' love of bureaucracy to send him home instead. So I really like that attempt, even though it ultimately went absolutely nowhere. So we move on to his third and fourth escape attempts. Now, these are effectively the two key escapes that he was to make during his time as a prisoner of war. Okay. The first one is actually one of the most notorious escape attempts that was to be made. And he came within a hair's breadth of succeeding. Right. So his plan was this. Every Thursday, the Germans escorted parties of around about 40 to the bathhouse in order to wash themselves. Now, the bathhouse was outside the main camp, still within the area of the camp itself, but outside the compound and therefore outside the wire. Mm -hmm. Now, the bathhouse consisted of a central shower room with changing rooms on either side. And then there was lavatories attached and then a sort of guard room at the front. Mm -hmm. And in bad weather, rather than patrol the outside of the bathhouse as they would in good weather... They would just stand in the guard room okay, and would therefore wait for the prisoners to complete their shower under shelter. Now, this is important because if they weren't patrolling the outside, they therefore weren't also protected by the wire because it's outside the perimeter of the wire. I get you, yeah. The lavatories are key here because the lavatories were only separated by a partition. One was connected to the inside and one was not. Right. So if you could get over the partition, you could then get outside of the bathhouse without having to actually exit the bathhouse. Clever. So that was his plan. However, there was also a weakness in the plan. No escape scheme is foolproof. And so the weakness was that they were, of course, carefully counted both on entering the bathhouse and leaving the bathhouse. And so he relied on effectively three degrees of security against this. Okay. He didn't try and put in place a false body to up the numbers. So his three degrees of security was this. First of all, 
the Germans would get a prison sentence of three weeks for letting the prisoner escape. So he figured it was a reasonable hope that they might actually cover up the shortage themselves. Until it was noticed that a later date, when hopefully they weren't on duty. Exactly. I get you. So even though they knew that someone had escaped, they wouldn't alert the authorities because they didn't want to take the blame and therefore be given a three-week prison sentence. Right. Not a bad point. Mm. Secondly, he managed to have obtained a false disc. Now, we know all prisoners of war had the discs that had their details. A bit like a dog tag. It had their details stating who they were, their rank, number, and that they were a prisoner of war. It was their proof that they were a prisoner of war if they were ever recaptured. He managed to get a false one, so he had two of them. His real one and a fake one. And he'd managed to find someone with a similar enough build to him that would be willing to submit himself twice with two different discs. Now, you might think that they would remember the same person appearing, but you've got to remember that there are thousands of prisoner of war in any given camp. Yeah. We already know there were 5,000 merchant seamen. Yes. And that's just half the camp. So if you're processing thousands of prisoners of war, you're not going to remember every single one of them. Hmm. Now, if he just puts on a coat and has a different tag, he then gets... Counted again. Counted again. Yeah. Or more actually, someone else puts on a coat and takes up his tag, his fake tag, he's, he gets counted in the tally. So however, there was a third degree of security against being noticed missing that he was also able to enact. So what they managed to do was, in order to avoid being noticed that he was missing from the afternoon and evening appels, he organised for the counting of the sick to be duplicated. So effectively, you could be counted as being unwell in one room. Right. And then in another room, so long as you effectively got ahead of the count. Yes. That's precisely what they did. Okay. So first of all, he's relying on the Germans not wanting to go to prison. He's got a false disc... And then third of all, he's managed to manipulate the numbers in the appell counts for the afternoon and evening after he escapes. Now, they can't do that forever. No. Eventually. He just needs to buy himself some time because otherwise the only time he's going to have is the difference between them going into the bathhouse and coming out of the bathhouse. Exactly. So he's buying himself a significant amount of time because, of course, 8 o'clock the next morning is when the next appell is taken. And so he's effectively giving himself the entirety of the first afternoon and evening to get out of the vicinity of mm. the camp. And we know how important it is to get away from the immediate area after an escape. The other thing I like about that is, of course, even if one doesn't work, i.e. if they do notice that the number's down and they do alert the authorities, even if they go through the tally appell where they count all the discs and then do another two rounds of normal appells, their numbers are still up. So it could just be put down to a miscount. Yeah. This is what I mean by three degrees of security. Even if the first one fails, he's got two backups. It's clever. It's yeah. very clever. It's very clever. So having put that all in place, he states that the main difficulty was once outside the camp, we'd be getting out of the immediate vicinity, as we've said, because they were near the coast and therefore it was littered with troops. And they were also in the bomber lane. So by that, that's the corridor where the bombers were going over all occupied Europe yeah. to go and bomb ports major cities, industrial areas. So they were in the bomber lane. And so the German home guard were out every night looking for airmen who had bailed out. Mm -hmm. So as well as being littered with troops, there's also a lot of home guards walking around. So it'd be very difficult to just be wandering around the immediate vicinity of the camp. He has to get away very quickly. There was a small gauge railway which took about an hour and a half to cover the 30 kilometres from Tarmstedt to Bremen, which of course is the nearest major city. Yeah. 
most POWs had considered that the train was too risky because it was a bit slow, wouldn't really get them out of the area too quickly, but also it'd be an obvious route. However, James took the opposite opinion, which was that it's so obvious that in actual fact... It's the best route to go. It's the best route to go. Yeah. Which I quite like. (laughs) I like that attitude. Hiding in plain sight. Correct. Which we have seen a lot before. Yes. He also had to prepare what he was going to wear during his escape, and his theory was that owing to the large number and variety of uniforms that were in Germany at this time, particularly around a port, that he figured he might as well just escape in British naval uniform. Bold. Very bold. And this is where it gets interesting. And this is arguably also where it becomes one of the more famous escapes that never was. Okay. Because... He was carrying papers that stated that he was a Bulgarian naval officer. Now, why Bulgarian? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. They were allies of the Germans. Okay. Secondly, he figured not many Germans would be able to speak Bulgarian. It's a good good assumption. He also figured not many Germans would recognise Bulgarian uniform, and therefore it wouldn't matter if he was in British uniform. Not the worst assumption either. No, no. And so finally, he arranged for a letter to be forged, purportedly from the first secretary of the Bulgarian legation, to the effect that he was employed on liaison duties of a technical nature, which required him to do much travelling. And since his knowledge of German was limited, it was hoped that all authorities would afford him the usual benevolent assistance. All fine. But this is where it gets particularly good. Because the name under which he travelled was to be Lieutenant Ivan Bagarov to be pronounced bugger off. Brilliant. So he was attempting to escape under the pseudonym of I bugger off. I'm rarely lost for words, but that is brilliant. It's fantastic. And I just love the fact that this was how his mind worked. (laughs) So, to the escape itself. On the 9th of December, so we're talking about very late in the actual escape season. In fact, it's out of the escape season. Deepest winter. Most people did not escape in December, but there is a reason why he went for the off-season. Because he wanted the weather to be bad so that the guards would be standing inside and not patrolling the bathhouse. Absolutely. So actually there's a logic for him attempting escape in the off-season. On the 9th of December, he joined the bath party to go to the bathhouse. And on that particular day, there was a thick fog... And so he managed to actually climb through a window, which actually saved him the effort of having to try and pick the lock of the outside lavatory. Mm -hmm. And therefore managed to successfully get clear of the bathhouse very quickly while the guards were on the other side of the bathhouse taking shelter. He states, I was wearing grey flannel trousers over my naval uniform and had my naval buttons covered with black silk covers as our uniform was well known at the local train station. That actually makes sense, because if you've got several thousand naval officers being held nearby, the uniform would be known. Yeah, whereas out in the rest of Germany, it's unlikely. Exactly, yeah, because they they might see a lot of airmen, they may even see quite a few army uniforms, but it's very unlikely that in central Germany, away from the coast, Mm. they would have seen a lot of British naval uniforms. Yeah. So the initial part of the escape, he's actually covering up his naval uniform in order to be able to get out of the immediate vicinity. He's he's attempting to assimilate into the local area. And he's also developed a cover story for that because he's trying to pass himself off as a Dane called Christoph Lindholm. And he had all the paperwork for this, including the Nausweis, forged of course. His story was that he'd been injured in a recent raid on Bremen and had been sent to the countryside for a week to rest his nerves. And he'd also bandaged his head for the immediate part of the escape attempt in order to substantiate this story. 
Now, quite early on, just outside the village of Vestatimka, he was stopped by a local policeman who asked for his papers and searched his bag, but he managed to succeed in satisfying him as to his identity. So actually, he's got very early proof of the quality of his forgeries here, mm. which must have been quite reassuring. He also managed to obtain about 150 German Reichmars and was able to buy himself a ticket on the train catching the one at 10 to 12 in the morning, which was filled with local shoppers. So again, he's just assimilating into the local community, local people and just fitting in and doing what normal people are doing at that time of day. Upon reaching Bremen about an hour and a half later, he went into the lavatory in, in the train station, took off the button covers and the flannel trousers, blacked up his moustache and emerged out of the toilet as Lieutenant Buggeroff. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> it's superb. He walked to the, the main train station and produced his papers. Now here he managed to encounter some very helpful policemen because he states, on production of my papers, the military policeman on duty sent an assistant who bought me a ticket to Lübeck, told me the time and platform of my train, and finally, having ordered me a beer, left me in the waiting room. <gasps> wow! This man's a hero, isn't he? <laughs> yes. So from there, he caught the train to Hamburg and had dinner in the station restaurant, and then managed to catch the 8 o'clock train to Lübeck. So having got into the compartment, there was some servicemen and a civilian who in the course of conversation asked me where I was going. I replied that I was a foreigner going to Lubeck and asked them where I could spend the night. They advised me not to stay in Lubeck because of the raids, but all my saying that the next place of call was Stett and advised me to stay the night in a waiting room. They even purchased my ticket and left me in the waiting room there once we arrived. So he seems to be finding some very helpful yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's very, yeah, very good. I mean, we're talking late 1943 here, so it, you know, the war is taking its toll within Germany. That or they just really took to Lieutenant Bugger off. So the next morning, having stayed the night in the waiting room, he caught the train at 0500 hours, arriving at Stettin at just after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, having done a quick search of the docks, he couldn't find any Swedish ships, so he decided to go on a pub crawl. <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, though, potentially if you've got sailors on shore leave, the pubs are probably the best place if you're going to try and find a contact to get onto a ship. Yes, if you're trying to find a sailor in a port, if it's not the pubs, it's the brothel. So having gone on this pub crawl, he seems not to have succeeded in managing to find himself a Swedish sailor. So he went back to a train station and tried to enter the civilian waiting room there. However, of course he was in uniform, yeah. and so he was stopped by the military police on duty who told him not to sleep in there but to sleep in the military waiting room. Fair enough, but likelihood of having your uniform recognised potentially is a lot higher. Significantly increased. However, he was given free soup and coffee by the Red Cross sister there. But he didn't sleep too well because he was in the immediate proximity of a German naval officer and 12 ratings who somehow managed to fail to recognise his British naval uniform. Which I think is really more of a reflection on them than on Lieutenant Bugger. True, but they wouldn't have been looking for a British uniform walking in. Well, it goes back to hiding port. in plain sight. Yeah, isn't well, absolutely, it? but I don't think I would have slept too well either. No, no, fair. So the next morning, he catches the first train to Lubeck, arriving there around about eleven o'clock in the morning. Now, he follows a plan that we've seen quite a lot before, which is that having had money and being able to afford trains and what have you, he then heads to a hotel where he manages to have a shave, have some a bite to eat, and then from there, he goes down to the docks. Now, upon arriving at the docks, he manages to locate two Swedish ships lying alongside each other. He therefore successfully managed to walk straight past the sentry without being challenged and boarded the first of these ships, which was a small coaster of about 300 tonnes. 
He knocked at the first cabin door that he could find and made his identity known to the steward inside. Now, while the steward seemed anxious to help, upon consulting the engineer with a view to hiding him in the coal bunker, he ascertained that it was probably going to be impossible as the ship would be coaling all of that day and therefore wouldn't be leaving that day. However, the ship neighbouring it, so the other Swedish ship lying right next door to it, was due to leave that day and he recommended that he try and get onto that one. Right. James doesn't go into quite so much detail in this report, but he does go into more detail in his book. Right. Because he states that he actually stayed and argued, because he felt safe on this ship. He's got the steward and the engineer who are both willing to help. He's and on, he's the on ship board. And yeah. he's on board. So all he needs to do is avoid the German inspection, wait a couple of days, and he gets out. So he stays and argues the case. They essentially say, we're not unwilling to help. Come back in a few days' time, we'll help you then. But the reality is we're going to be on dock for the next two, three days. The ship next door is about to leave. Go there. And so eventually James accepts their advice. He goes up onto deck, goes down the gangplank, back onto the dock, and just as he's about to walk up the gangplank of the next one, the gangplank has moved away, the ship sails off. He quite literally watches his ship leave for Sweden from the dockside. Wow. So he returns to the first ship, tells the steward what's happened and they reiterate look again come back in two three days time we'll help you then so he goes to return back out of the dock and it's at that point that he's challenged by the guard who really should have challenged them on the way in yes yes absolutely and so he is arrested at this point so when i said earlier that one of the most if not notorious certainly famous escape attempts that was to fail by hair's breadth this is what I mean. Yes. He has literally watched the ship sail off. And he's been on another ship twice. <laughs> twice. And he gets arrested upon leaving the dock, not on entering. God. Poor guy. Now, the reason why this really upsets me, because I think it would actually have become legendary status if he had managed to succeed in this escaping under the pseudonym of I Bugger Off. And in his uniform. In a British naval uniform. I mean, that just would have been... Amazing. Absolutely fantastic. Sadly, however, he got arrested, as I said, and was returned to camp on the 13th of December. However, he was only sentenced to about 10 days solitary, which actually is relatively low compared to some of the sentences we have seen of 21, 28 days or so. And as soon as he got out of the cells, he started to prepare for his next attempt and what we know to be his final attempt to escape. So he clearly got a taste for freedom from his third escape attempt. Having got so close, he clearly felt he could do it again. In fact, he felt he could do it again so well that he almost made an identical escape. So prior to the war, he'd spent some time in Scandinavia. Yes. And managed to speak a little bit of Swedish. And so he decided that this time, as he spoke the language, he was going to travel as a Swedish merchant navy officer. He's going to have to find a reason for him being within country, though, because surely most Swedish naval officers would not venture outside the port. Well, yes. So you've got to remember he's still relatively near the coast. Yes, yeah. Where he is, and he states that his cover was that he'd been wounded in a raid on Bremen and was returning to his ship. Good plan. Which is fair. However, sadly, it does mean that Lieutenant I. Buggeroff has been killed off because he has decided to now travel as a Swede. I was going to say, worse things happen at sea, but... <laughs> So he's, he returns to the forgery department in Milag Marlag and is provided with a temporary Swedish passport, a letter from the Swedish consul in Bremen to the effect that since he is of a neutral power and has suffered so much physically and mentally so far during his stay in Germany that it is hoped everything will be done to help him on his return journey home. Mm-hmm. 
effectively guilt-tripping again. Yeah. But why not? And he's also provided with a few other documents drafted by the same people who'd forged his previous documents. Now, as I said earlier, he got quite an early example of how successful those forgeries were, so he clearly trusts them that they're providing him with good quality stuff. Now, he again planned to go in his uniform and greatcoat, but this time he had to shift it all over onto merchant, service, buttons, etc. Mm-hmm. And he took a, a set of civilian buttons as well. So a couple of weeks later, on the 10th of February 1944, after waiting a couple of weeks for suitable weather conditions, he left the bathhouse as previously under cover of a snowstorm. Now, he lay up all day in the wood near the camp and caught the evening train to Bremen and spent the night in the station waiting room where a very efficient railway policeman inspected my papers and expressed himself completely satisfied. Good. So again, we're seeing the high quality of the forgeries that are being produced in Milag Marlag. Mm. Now, this is where he goes in for a bit of subterfuge because he states with the intention of directing any hue and cry onto Lubeck, he purposefully tendered the wrong change at the booking office and mispronounced the word Lubeck when purchasing my ticket. I then caught the 0405 Express to Hamburg, continuing onto Lubeck and immediately bought a supplementary ticket to Rostock, which I reached at 1100 hours. Shows how good train travel is for getting away. Yes. Really good. It's just the single most effective route, if you can afford it. Hmm. Immediately searching the docks, there were no ships for him to get. So he continued on to Stettin, arriving there at 0900 hours the next day, but again drew a blank with regard to Swedish ships. However, while in Stettin, an incident occurred which very nearly ended this escape attempt. Because he went into a restaurant for lunch and when washing had apparently washed off a small scab, causing his forehead to bleed... Now, while sitting at the table, a man at the table next to him drew his attention to the fact that blood was pouring down his forehead. So he clearly washed himself, Mm. pulled off a scab accidentally, and has now been informed by the person at the table next to him that he is now bleeding from the forehead. So he went to the bathroom to staunch the bleeding, and the gentleman who had alerted him to it courteously accompanied him. Out of pure politeness, he asked me who I was, and on hearing that I was Swedish, he told me in fluent Swedish that he'd been in Sweden for 10 years. As my Swedish was nowhere near up to his standard, I must have thoroughly aroused his suspicions, and that of the proprietor who was hovering in the background. I was able to get clear, abandoning my beer and lunch. However, it was a close shave. Wow. Yeah. He goes on to state, feeling certain that they would inform the police, I went straight to the nearest public bathroom, changed my merchant service buttons to civilian ones, removed my cat badge, altering my appearance, and took the first train out of town in the direction of Danzig. Good plan. Very Wild West as well, first train out of town. Yes. Uh, so the next day being a Sunday, so we're now talking about the 13th of February, he wasn't particularly anxious to go looking for ships, knowing it'd be quite a quiet day. And so he spent the day just killing time effectively. Now, we've heard about people killing time by going for a walk in the park, which he does do, or going to a cinema, and because even if they don't understand the language, they can sleep in the dark, or they can yeah. just kill a couple of hours watching the film. However, because it's a Sunday, he says he goes to church. Now, I haven't heard that one before. Hmm. Again, you're going to a place where you're largely going to be left alone. You can kill at least an hour, an hour and a half. It's a very smart move and a good use of a Sunday to kill time and just hide in plain sight again. Because, of course, he's going about normal routine. No one's going to question someone going to church on a Sunday morning. No. So having done all that, he then catches the afternoon train to Danzig and arrives there at 6.30 in the afternoon. He then spent the night in the waiting room again, and although he was asked for papers again, they again passed muster. Now, I find it interesting that he's making a lot of use of the waiting room rather than the hotel, because we've seen both being used, but he's using the waiting room to quite good effect here. Hmm. However, despite not using hotels all that often, 
he finds himself in a relatively precarious situation on the morning of the 14th of February because he actually only has six Reich marks left and he was reaching the end of his tether with regards to keeping up a respectable appearance. Now, we know that keeping up a respectable appearance if you're travelling by train, staying in hotels, etc., is actually very important because yes. if you start looking like a tramp, you're unable to assimilate and therefore it makes it far more difficult to travel, hide in plain sight. I'll keep absolutely. using the phrase, but it is important. Yeah, absolutely. This therefore meant that he felt that it was imperative that he either board a ship that night or obtain assistance from some of the French workers that were in Danzig. Now, inspection of the harbour showed that there were only two Danish ships. Obviously, he was trying to get to Sweden, not Denmark, which it was, of course, occupied. So he tried approaching French workers first, but although they were sympathetic, they were unable to help. Therefore, he tried to board one of the Danish ships. However, there was a sentry patrolling between the gangway of the two ships. And going down the unguarded side of one of the ships, he lay up between some warehouses until it was dark and thus managed to avoid the sentry and board one of the ships. Now, the challenge there, of course, is there's not a gangway on that side. Mm. He doesn't clarify quite how he managed to get on board. I can only assume via a rope or a chain that was connected to the dockside. But he doesn't clarify on that one. But he has, of course, managed to avoid the sentry, which is important. Having got on board, he went straight to the engine room and within a quarter of an hour made contact with the stoker who told him that the ship was going first to Lübeck for grain and then on to Denmark. While this wasn't ideal, he felt that where there's life, there's hope and so decided to remain on board, which tallies with his approach earlier with the Swedish Absolutely. ship. So the ship eventually left harbour on the 16th of February with the stoker covering them coal. However, they were unable to bring him any food and so he was on board for three days without any food. Ultimately reaching Lubeck on the 18th of February, but they were unable to get him out until the 19th. On the evening of the 19th of February, the stoker informed him that rather going on to Denmark, the ship was going to be doing a trip to Königsberg, which is in the exact opposite direction. Oh my word. Before then proceeding to Denmark. Now, he didn't much fancy the idea of spending the next 21 days in the coal and pitch darkness with no guarantee of safety at the end of it, so he decided to leave the ship at this stage as soon as possible and felt he now knew Lubeck sufficiently well to stand the chance of boarding another ship under the cover of darkness. Oh, how frustrating. But also very high risk given he's now got no money left. Yeah, and he's covered in coal. He effectively needed to find a ship by daylight because, as I said, he got off on the evening of the 19th. So he got until daylight the next morning of the 20th of February in order to find another ship. So he's got a very time-limited opportunity here. So he spent the entire night boarding various ships in the harbour and eventually he managed to board a big ship with a Scandinavian name in the timber yards. Now, creeping up to the saloon on the ship, there was a party in progress, but was disappointed to hear only Finnish voices, which he recognised having spent a year in Finland on a four-masted bark. So he therefore decided to leave the ship and find another one of unknown nationality. But while he was doing this, the air raid sirens sounded. He had to spend about an hour hiding underneath a lorry in order to avoid being seen. After the air raid had ended, he managed to find a large merchant ship and managed to get on board without being seen. Now, the reason why he chose this one was the ship appeared to have steam up and therefore, while he could find no clues of the nationality, it was clearly ready to leave. Yeah. is high risk, but clearly he's getting towards the end of the night and has to get on board somewhere. So eventually he said there was no signs of life, but finally I heard snores issuing from the galley where I found the night watchman asleep. When the night watchman is fast asleep, that's always a good sign of security. And by the side of the sleeping night watchman was a peculiar type of Finnish knife, which he immediately recognised, presumably again from his previous experience on the Finnish ship. 
It was now too late to board another ship, so I waited outside in the shadow until the night watchman came out later. I addressed him first in German to make certain that he did not speak it, and then asked him in Swedish his ship's nationality, name and destination and time of sailing. He replied that she was a Swedish ship and was due to sail in under two hours for Stockholm with a cargo of oranges. He then asked me who I was and I said German customs which seemed to satisfy him. Brilliant. So he's now found himself on a Finnish ship sailing to Sweden within two hours. Precisely the scenario you want to find when you've got time limit. Absolutely. <laughs> to find a ship to get you out of here. Because he, he, he has no other route. If this but, doesn't work, he's done. But also risky because if he's just said he's German to inspect the ship if someone German actually turns up to inspect the ship and the guy says one of your guys is already there problem yes exactly and certainly one that he had considered because he states I find my way down to the engine room where I met a stoker stressing the fact of my having been a year in the Finnish merchant service I disclosed my identity to him and asked him to stow me away to Stockholm he said that although he personally liked the British, he was doubtful about the success, so I offered him a sum of £200 if he'd take the risk. He therefore agreed and hid me under the boilers. Now, I looked into this. That's about £6,000 in today's money. Wow. it's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. A few minutes later, the ship's inspection party arrived, and they actually tapped the boiler casing where I was hiding but did not discover me, and then the ship sailed at about 0700 hours on the 20th of February. I stayed hiding under the boilers until the ship reached Stockholm on the 22nd of February, so two days later. Now, he had to be battened down for at least one of the three watches, but for the other two, they were perfectly happy for the manhole to be kept open, and therefore he got fresh air. However, he had to be sealed in for that third one because they couldn't be certain of the security of that particular watch. Mm -hmm. Which must have been an unpleasant experience for two days, but better than being recaptured, I suppose. Eventually, on the 22nd of February, at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they reached Stockholm, but at the crew's request, he agreed not to leave the ship until after dark, presumably because of suspicions around members of this particular watch. And therefore, at 1800 hours, I went ashore, and having made contact with the British consul and gone through all the usual police formalities, I was freed the next morning. Now, there is a quick postscript to this before we move on to his post-escape career. Okay. Because he actually states that he had had an opportunity to speak to someone who was in the camp after he had escaped. And on the morning after his departure, the camp commandant came into a pill with his face beaming and said to the man of confidence, in full hearing of the entire camp, I'm delighted to be able to tell you, Captain Lambert, that's the man of confidence, that Lieutenant Jackson has been reported back from leave, i.e. has been recaptured. Lambert, in return, replied, and I'm delighted to be able to tell you that Lieutenant James has just gone off on leave again. Brilliant. So that is how the Germans were informed the next morning, having escaped at midday the previous day, that Lieutenant James had escaped. Oh, I love it. It's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, that is good. But as we've seen before, some of these people's war does not end there. Absolutely not. So in this case, Lieutenant James comes back. His escape earned him the OBE. And he spent a little bit of time at the Naval Intelligence Division where he lectured colleagues on escaping. Because let's face it, he's quite experienced on he escaping now. He, he about, yeah. definitely knows what he's talking about. How now, to bugger off out of Germany. Completely. Now, it was deemed that his use was probably not best spent where his former sort of colleagues have gone to, which was out to the Middle East. So he actually transferred to join Operation Tabarin, one I'm absolutely not aware of. But I looked into it and it was basically to do with the Falkland Islands in Argentina. Okay. And what it did is it took him south into the Antarctic and he sets up quite a long relationship with the Antarctic from there. So, as you know, he wrote a book about his experiences, but he did get involved in a number of other things, including 
films. Okay. So having gone down as part of that Operation Tabarin to the Antarctic, he was then used for the film production in 1948 of Scott of the Antarctic, right. where he actually appears as John Mills's body double. Right. Which I thought was, which was excellent. And not to miss an opportunity, he then wrote a book, Scott of the Antarctic, the film and its production, which was also published just after the war. And that was followed later by another book on the frozen land, the story of a year in the Antarctic. So obviously his time in the Antarctic was quite useful to him and and profitable to him, shall we say, later on. And a significant period in his life, clearly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For a number of years, it seems. So yeah, so most of the 1950s he was spent authoring various books on the subject, but he also dabbled in Parliament in quite a big way, I think, because he was the Member of Parliament for Brighton and Kempdown. Whilst originally he came from Brackley in Northamptonshire, he had settled in Haywards Heath in Sussex. And from 1959 to 1964, he was that Member of Parliament. And it appears that, you probably know more than this than, than I do, but when he eventually lost his seat, it was after a record number of recounts, and that he actually lost by just seven votes pretty tight but he subsequently became an MP again for North Dorset in 1970 and he eventually retired in 1979 but his story was told on This Is Your Life in the 1960s so he was ambushed it says at Victoria train station and I have here that he died in the end in December 1986 so he was active for most of the rest of his life within public service we Mm -hmm. could say but his book has been particularly useful for this hasn't it? Yes indeed so it's called Escaper's Progress and inevitably goes into a lot more detail than an eight-page report does. It's a fantastic read. It goes into more detail, particularly on the escape of I Bugger Off, and uh, is well worth a read. So we are always happy to discover and recommend books by escapers we cover, and I'm more than happy to recommend giving Escapers Progress by David James a go. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.